the book of Mark since August, and we're in chapter 13 right now, and today we come to a passage in chapter 13 that is, it is really complex and difficult, perhaps one of the most challenging passages in the entire book, and we're going to try to tackle it. So I'm, I'm hoping that you're praying for me this morning, because I need it, um, And also, I'm going to be presenting a certain view that you might not agree with, you might not have heard before, but I just ask you to bear with me. And even though you might not agree with it, that's okay. I ask that you study it for yourself and test the things that I'm saying to see if it jives with Scripture. If Scripture is indeed confirming Scripture, if the Spirit is indeed confirming the things that I'm saying. So, the past two weeks we've been working through chapter 13 in this mini-series on the end times. And uh, it's Tuesday, on the last week of Jesus' life, still. On Monday, the day before, he flipped the money changers' tables in the temple. He condemned the temple and the religious leaders and said, You have made the temple a den of robbers. It was like he compared it to the rotten fruit on a fig tree or the absent fruit on a fig tree. And earlier... On Tuesday, this last, in this last week of Jesus' life, the religious leaders confront Jesus with venom on their lips, with hatred in their hearts. They're trying to get Jesus to condemn himself in front of the people. And instead, Jesus silences the religious leaders with his supreme wisdom and authority. And then after he silences these religious leaders, he leaves the temple never to set foot in it again. He goes up the Mount of Olives and overlooks the temple, overlooks Jerusalem, and he sits down as a judge over the city and begins prophesying about judgments that are coming. And they will befall Jerusalem. He says the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then the disciples ask him, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the signs leading up to it? How will we know? Everything that follows in the, book, in the chapter of Mark 13 is an answer to the disciples' question. When will the temple be destroyed and what will be the events, the signs leading up to it? So two weeks ago, we talked about some of these initial signs, the beginning of the birth pains. I gave you specific names and dates and there's actually a handout in the back still with this. Dates of false Christs, wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions, and gospel expansion, and how all of these signs were fulfilled leading up to 70 AD with precise accuracy. So Jesus' words were fulfilled leading up to 70 AD. Then last week, we looked at the great tribulation that befell the Jews in the Jewish war Leading up to 70 AD, the civil wars that erupted, hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed at the hands of the Romans and at the hands of their fellow Jews. And then as civil war seems to be at its worst in Jerusalem and slaughter is happening and confusion is happening inside the city walls, the Roman army arrives and encircles Jerusalem on Passover. The abomination of desolations. The the abominable army of idolaters is bent on destruction or the desolation of Jerusalem. The Roman army is the abomination of desolations and it is God's 
final hammer blow of judgment on this wicked city. And we also looked last week at this amazing flight of the Christians away from Jerusalem to Pella in the mountains across the Jordan River where all of the Christians escaped this area. And in all of the devastation that happened in Jerusalem, there is not one record of a Christian dying. And so today we're going to look at the fall of Jerusalem, at the destruction of the temple, at the coming of the Son of Man and clouds, and all of the horrors that surrounded it. So this is what I want you to see today. I want you to see that all of Jesus' words in Matthew 13 are precisely fulfilled, leading up to and in 70 A.D., And then I want you to see that Christ's kingdom is not a kingdom that has a capital city. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that is filling the whole earth, and it is made up of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. It is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All right, well, let's read our passage, Mark 13, verses 24 to 37. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will, not pa- will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake. Let's pray again. Father, again, guide us through these words in this very difficult passage. Lord, I pray that you would give me humility as I present them. Help me to keep me from error. Imbue on all of us this morning a spirit of gentleness and receptivity. I pray that we would be filled with love for one another. And I pray that we would look on these words and their fulfillments and be in awe of our Savior who spoke with such accuracy. We can so fully rely on him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before I get to this text, we're going we're to walk through some more historical events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem. And, and so these events would still be sitting within the great tribulation that was referenced in verse 19 in the previous passage. So here's a little bit of a warning Some of the things I'm going to be telling you are horrific and graphic and hard to hear. 
But these are real things, and they really happened, and I want you to get a taste of how terrible this great tribulation was for the Jews. And, and so everything that I'm giving to you, that I'm saying, has been recorded for us by Josephus, and I'm sort of, I'm giving you the very smallest sampling of what he has to say. Okay, so in the days leading up to the Romans' arrival, Jews were streaming into Jerusalem. It was Passover, it was leading up to Passover, and so Passover was one of the festivals where the Jews were commanded to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So Jews were coming, despite the civil war that was going on and, and everything else that was difficult, Jews were still coming to Jerusalem and filling it. And everybody thought, yeah, the Romans are in the land, and yeah, they're headed to Jerusalem, but what, what safer place than inside the city walls of Jerusalem? So they didn't think twice about going to Jerusalem. In fact, that might have been the best place to go. So the city is absolutely swollen with people when the, Jew, when the Romans arrive on Passover. And then suddenly it's surrounded. The most powerful military on the face of the planet bent on destroying that city. And how merciful are Jesus' words at this point. Don't go into Jerusalem. Flee. Get out. Don't even turn around and grab your jacket. Get out of there. And that's what the Christians did. And they escaped to Pella. As I discussed last week, famine was knocking on the door already in Jerusalem with these civil wars going on. But now when the Romans had surrounded it, when the siege was going on, and as that went on, famine broke loose in full fury, and things get unspeakable. People ripping food out of each other's arms, and when there's no more food to rip out of each other's arms, they're eating their leather belts, and when the leather belts are gone, they're, e they're tearing the leather off their shields, and they're eating the leather. They're eating dried up excrement of oxen. The want for food is so horrific that people are trying to escape Jerusalem, to get out, to go get food somewhere. But when they escape, they run right into the swords of the bloodthirsty Romans. The Romans crucify every deserter to such a degree that, they, that there's no more space for crosses around the city of Jerusalem. Some of the deserters get the idea that if they swallow their valuables, their gold and their jewelry, they'll be able to keep those possessions with them if they can make it through. Unfortunately, Arabs and Syrians attached to the Roman army, they find out about this. In one night, with such greed for gold, these Arabs and Syrians take 2,000 Jews and disembowel them seeking gold in one night. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, this famine rages on. And here comes one of the most terrible stories in this time. A starving Jewish noblewoman takes her infant son and kills him and begins to prepare him for food. The smell is so good that some soldiers, some Jewish soldiers are attracted, they come to the door, they bang on it, they, they demand at the threat of death that she produce whatever food she's hiding in there. And to their utter horror, she brings out her son already half-eaten. And they are so, these Jews 
these soldiers are petrified in horror of what they're seeing. News of this abominable cannibalism spreads throughout Jerusalem and people begin congratulating everybody who's dying because they escape this horror. Of this famine, George Peter Holford writes in 1805, the tops of the houses and the recesses of the city were covered with the carcasses of women, children, and aged men. The young men appeared like ghosts in the places of public resort and fell down lifeless in the streets. The dead were too numerous to be interred, and many died while burying others. The public calamity was too great for lamentation. Silence, and as it were, a black and deadly night overspread the city. Josephus writes that no less than 600,000 bodies are cast out of the various city gates. And when Titus, the Roman general who's leading the siege, when he hears about this, he goes to survey these heaps of bodies. And as he's looking at them, he raises his hands to heaven and he says, This is not because of me. I did not cause this. But surely, God, you have caused this because of this city's great wickedness. So Titus, the Roman general, doesn't even want to be the cause of such death and horror. It was the end of Jerusalem. And very soon the Romans were going to breach the city walls. But as long as the temple stood, then so did the the temple systems, the sacrifices, the priesthood. The old covenant would remain. And so now we can look at our first two verses in our passage. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And so the first thing we come to in our passage is this very vivid imagery. The sun will go dark, the stars will fall from heaven, the moon will not give its light, the the whole heavens will be shaken. It sounds like the end of the world, the end of the solar system, right? It sounds like the end of all time. But notice, there's a time marker. In those days, immediately after that tribulation. So if this tribulation is a tribulation that happened to the Jews, then what Jesus is saying now, what follows, happened in those days. So is Jesus saying that the end of the whole world would, ha- would coincide with the destruction of the temple? Again, we need to understand the language that is confronting us in the passage. This is not meant to be taken absolutely literally. This is apocalyptic language. It's meant to convey thoughts of God's judgment, His impending judgment, His coming wrath and fury upon a city or people that will receive His judgment. And the disciples to whom Jesus is talking are well-versed in apocalyptic language because it permeates the Old Testament. And the disciples would have been very familiar with it. So I'm going to go through a bunch of these Old Testament uh, um, passages that have this kind of apocalyptic language in it. So Ezekiel prophesying judgments on Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. 
I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light, and all the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you, and put darkness in your land, declares the Lord. Is that language not similar? Super similar? (laughs) How about when Isaiah is prophesying against Edom? All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall away, and the hev- and the, as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Again, same language. Now, here's one more. When Isaiah is prophesying against Babylon's destruction, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. These are just a few. There are so many more passages like this. Same kind of apocalyptic language. When judgment comes upon these cities and these nations, the world did not end. The star was not, the the sun was not literally, literally snuffed out, the heavens were not rolled up like a scroll. The solar system didn't come crashing apart. This is apocalyptic language about a judgment of a city or a people. God's wrath is being poured out on these various cities. And this is the exact same context as Mark 13. Jesus is not saying that the sun will go dark, but that there is a terrible judgment coming. The day of the Lord, the day of of vengeance. Now for here I want to look back at a time when Jesus was in Nazareth. He quotes a scripture. After he quotes this scripture about himself, about the Messiah, all of the Jews in, in hearing it got up to kill him. It's from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to, pr- to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the, op- and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus stops. He doesn't keep quoting. We're all, I think, really familiar with this passage, but I don't know if you realize it. Jesus stops in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a sentence. Because when he's speaking these things, it's the year of the Lord's favor. He's offering salvation in himself. He's offering freedom to the captives. Come, receive, come, drink to all who are thirsty. Come, drink. It's the year of the Lord's favor. But by the time we get to Mark 13, the Jews have all but rejected him. In a couple chapters, they will crucify him. And then we can see... Then the next part of Isaiah gains profound meaning to us. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Christ's main purpose, main purposes, bring freedom to, to loose the captives and to proclaim the vengeance of of our God, a coming judgment. And knowing this, if you look through the Gospels, you see it over and over and over and over again. Jesus proclaiming a destruction, a judgment coming upon the Jews. And in fact, before Jesus arrives, with John the Baptist, he says something to the effect of, 
The axe is at the root. The winnowing fan is in his hand. He's saying that when Jesus arrives, so also judgment is coming. So we see that the day of vengeance is a main purpose of Jesus's. And we look back into 70 AD and we see God's judgment that came upon Jerusalem through the hands of the Romans. The day of vengeance. As long as the temple stands, again, so does the old covenant. Jesus fulfills the old covenant. The keepers of the old covenant, the Jews and the religious leaders, reject Jesus. They reject, therefore, God. They reject the new covenant. And so upon the old covenant come the days of vengeance and destruction. And now we can look at verse 26 and begin to understand it. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So I am proposing that that verse was fulfilled in 70 AD. This is not a verse about Jesus returning to earth. This is a verse about Jesus coming in judgment over the Jews during the destruction of the temple. This verse is not a happy verse. This verse is a horrific verse for the Jews. So first, I want to establish with you that coming on clouds is a well-established Jewish it's Jewish language of judgment, once again. This is language of judgment. And you see it all over the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you a few more samplings. So a prophecy against Israel fulfilled by the, the Assyrian invasion. Now it is I who speak judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like the clouds, his chariot like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. His horses that are swifter than eagles, those are the clouds that it's talking about. God riding on the clouds. All right, how about a prophecy against Egypt from Ezekiel? Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a time of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A prophecy against Judah fulfilled by the Babylonian invasion. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now here comes an interesting one from Joel 2. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Peter quotes Joel 2 at Pentecost. And he's quoting it to let everybody know that in your hearing, these things are happening. A day of clouds and thick darkness is on the horizon when Peter quotes Joel 2. So in the Old Testament, God riding on the clouds is common imagery for his coming judgment. Now, God does not literally mount up on clouds like a chariot and ride them into a city. This is language, 
figurative language of judgment. God riding on clouds, language of judgment. Jesus riding on clouds or coming in the clouds, language of judgment. Now, let's look back at verse 26 in Mark 13. And I want you to notice who he's talking to again. Right? He's talking to the disciples. So why doesn't he say to the disciples, you will see the Son of Man coming on clouds? Because if this is about his return and the gathering of his kingdom in, you would think he'd be saying it to the disciples. You will see it. But he doesn't. He says, they will see it. Why? Why they? Because it's about judgment. The disciples are not going to receive judgment. Those that reject him will receive judgment. So they will see the Son of Man riding on clouds for their judgment. And those judgments are coming. In fact, to further emphasize this, Jesus says this directly to the religious leaders in Matthew 26, 64. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. These religious leaders are holding court over Jesus, judging him, proclaiming his execution or, or taking him to the cross. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying to them, you think you're judging me? You will see the Son of Man coming in judgment over you. And the language is exact parallel to what we find in Mark 13 in, in the Olivet Discourse. In the context of Mark 13, Jesus is telling the disciples that when the temple is destroyed, when all of these things are taking place, that is judgment of Jesus on the Jews, on the temple system, on the Old Covenant. That is Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven, bringing judgment upon apostate Israel. Again, Jesus is not talking about when he is returning to earth. He's talking about when he will come in judgment over Israel. It's the end of the age of the law. It is, these are the days of vengeance. And so now we're going to turn back to history and look at some of those events that surround the fall of the temple. So the, the Romans had been encircled around Jerusalem for some time, trying to penetrate its walls, having difficulty because the walls were very strong around Jerusalem. But finally, they breach it. They stream in now with this, literally this crazed, wild bloodlust, and they are killing every Jew that they find mercilessly. Josephus writes this, most of the slain, and, and so they, let me... This is when they're entering the temple. This is when they've penetrated the temple and they are in there. And as we kind of discussed last week, people were using the temple as a fortress. And so there were a lot of Jews in the temple. So the Jews break in and Josephus, the Romans break in and Josephus writes this. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. Heaps of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped down to the bottom. A great pool of blood ends up stagnating around the altar. 
And there are some people who say that this is where the abomination of desolations really occurs because there was an abomination of desolations that happened before Jesus' life where this general, he broke into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. In this abomination of desolation, it's not pig's blood, but it's the apostate blood of the Jews that is now covering the altar. And as all of this is going on, the Romans are slaughtering and killing and blood is flowing and stagnating. Titus wants to keep this temple intact. If he can keep this intact, this will be a great tribute to his conquests through the land of Judea. And the Roman soldiers are beginning to throw firebrands on the temple. They weren't wanting to burn it down. And so Titus is end up running around like a madman trying to stop these soldiers. In fact, he even has a number of them beaten. So they would stop burning the temple, but he can't. The soldiers do not listen or they cannot listen. And they go on throwing in fire on the temple. And the temple burns. In fact, an observer, observer from the distance says that the temple looked like it was engulfed in one giant flame from its foundations all the way to the top. As the soldiers continue to kill, they plunder the temple. They tear apart its walls because its walls are clad in gold. They tear apart its walls and melt the gold off of them so they can take this plunder home. For nine more days, they burn and they level Jerusalem. Every person they find, if, they are not found, if they're not sold into slavery, they are mercilessly slaughtered. And Josephus records that 1.1 million Jews died in Jerusalem during the siege. And Titus, at, at the end of this, Titus gives the order to level Jerusalem. The soldiers not only throw down every stone, they not only, only level every building, they dig up the foundations of the building. Jesus' words are so exactly fulfilled There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down from verse 2. In fact, in about, I think it's about 40 more years, farmers are plowing the land where the temple used to be. Now here I forgot to put it in, but I wanted to have a picture of this Roman relief in an arch that's in Rome, and it's a picture of a of a high priest being processed through the city streets of Rome with the soldiers that have captured him and the great menorah from the temple in Jerusalem that they're carrying with them in Rome. The day that the temple was destroyed was the ninth day of Av, which is August 30th, which is the exact same day that the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The ninth day of Av in 70 AD was the day that Jesus came on the clouds in judgment and poured out his wrath on the city that did not recognize his visitation. Before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Jerusalem has the largest church in the world. It's where the faith began. Pentecost 3,000 came to faith. In Acts 4, you could argue that 5,000 came to faith. It's a massive church in Jerusalem. 
And now there was not one Christian left in this capital city. Because, perhaps, for the followers of Jesus, there is no capital city. Because our kingdom, his kingdom, has no capital city. It's a, it's a kingdom of every people, every tribe, tongue, and language. And so look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of, the hev- to the ends of heaven. And I don't believe that this is talk about the rapture. Again, I believe this is stuff that happened up to and leading up to 70 AD and, and then immediately following. I believe that Jesus is talking about his kingdom and how his kingdom will fill the whole earth. So the Greek language presents some difficulties for us sometimes. The Greek word for angels is the same word for messengers in the English. It translates either way. So you could very accurately read this same sentence with, then he will send out his messengers rather than angels as a possibility. And I think if we take it in that context, he's sending out his messengers, then this fits in perfect parallel with things like the parable of the grain of mustard seed from Mark 3, verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and put puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom starts infinitesimally small, and then it grows and it fills the whole earth. One man came proclaiming freedom and liberty, and now his messengers go out to the whole world spreading the gospel Advancing his kingdom, filling the whole earth with the gospel, with the kingdom. So it's my conviction that when Jesus sends out his messengers to gather the elect, it is perfectly consistent with how he talks about the growth of his kingdom. And so let's look into our our next passage, or the next part of our passage, verses 28 through 30. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. When you see these signs take place. The past two weeks I've been showing you these signs that they were present leading up to and during the fall of Jerusalem. Wars, false Christs, earthquakes, famines, persecution, gospel expansion, abomination of desolation, and tribulation all happen with exact precision in those years leading up to 70 AD. And when the disciples see these things happening, they know that the judgment of God, that the days of vengeance, that the end of the age is near at the very gates. So what we just read, how can you not look at that and, and, and not see all of the timestamps all over it? When you see, not some future people, when you see, so when some of the people that he's talking to will see, he is near at the very gates. Not, when you say to somebody he is near, you're not thinking 2,000 plus years in the future. This generation. The time is close. It is not the distance 
unknown future. It is within their probable lifetime. And then to further prove that Jesus is not talking about events in some distant time, 2,000 plus years into the future, he tells them all of it's going to happen within 40 years. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Which, of course, this is a difficult sentence, and so people have begun to define, redefine what generation means. They have said it's a, a type of people, like a, a wicked people or a Christian people. Some people have said that this generation doesn't mean this generation, the apostles' generation. It means that when the nation of Israel is reestablished, then that, na- then that generation at that time. But how can you read this text and get that? Additionally, when you look all throughout the New Testament and look at the word generation, at no other point does it mean anything except a 40-year span of time. Not once. And so, if you're saying that generation means something other than what generation means, it's because you are imposing a set of views on the text rather than letting the text tell you what it means. Now, you can disagree with me on that, and that's okay. Jesus is clearly saying to the disciples that within 40 years of his words, everything he's saying will be accomplished. And then he puts the exclamation mark of exclamation marks on top of it. In the most emphatic terms, he's saying it will happen Look at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His words are more permanent than space and time, matter and energy. His words are more permanent than the physical world. Jesus' words are more real than the ground that you and I are standing on. All of these things will happen within one generation of the disciples. You can bet on it. You can bet your life on it. But Jesus will not give them an exact date. Look at verses 32 to 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. I'll stop there. We've read the rest. So the disciples are not given the dates of the end of the age. They're just given these signs. In fact, Jesus even admits that in the mystery of his humanity, he doesn't know the dates. In fact, I think the dates aren't even important. What is important is faith in Jesus' words. Look at the signs, look for the signs, and know that it will happen soon. Have faith in Jesus' words. That is what is important. Faith will cause the disciples to stay alert. Faith will cause them to not become complacent. Do not lose faith. Do not chase after these false prophets and these false Christs. Watch the signs. Know that the end of the age, the end of the old covenant, the end of the old system is upon you when you see these signs taking place. When all these things are happening and the Jews' world seem to be coming apart, 
then they are to remember Jesus' words and let them prove His divine authority. Trust that His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is established forever, where Christ rules with glory and power. His is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, unlike this old covenant kingdom that's being torn apart. His is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence of all, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the kingdom where our Jesus sits on the throne. It starts as a mustard seed, and it grows to fill the whole earth. Or, it starts like a stone that grows like a mountain to fill the whole earth. Do you remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar? He had a vision. His vision was of a giant and terrible statue. Its head and shoulders were made of gold. Its arms and chest of silver. Its middle and thighs were bronze and then iron legs. And then the feet were made of iron and clay. Daniel interprets this to mean kingdoms. The gold head was Babylon. And now we know through history that the silver were the Greeks, the bronze, the Medo-Persians, the legs, the Romans. The feet that were iron and clay was a kingdom that was divided. Now there's so much speculation about what that can mean, but... Just before the fall of the temple, Nero had committed suicide. Four Roman emperors, through civil war, sprung to power. It was a divided empire. It was an upheaval. At that time, the stone strikes the feet of the statue. The statue crumbles, it turns to dust, and the wind blows it away. And that stone grows to become a mountain, and it fills the entire earth. You see, in the time of the Romans, precisely when, when this vision of Nebuchadnezzar said, the stone that is Jesus Christ, that the builders rejected, struck the feet, struck in the Roman Empire, and it grows to fill the whole earth. That even today, in this weirdly obscure place known as Utica, as New Hartford, we are speaking of these things. This is the kingdom that we are part of. All earthly kingdoms are subject to his kingdom. He is the kingdom. He is the king of kings. And now he has come to reign, to rule in our hearts. Jesus is our king of kings. And our king has given us a great commission to send us out as messengers to gather the children of God from all the corners of the earth. Jesus has appointed us as the ambassadors that will grow his kingdom to fill the whole earth and gather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see this consistency all the way through the book of Mark, especially in chapter 13. Now, I want to be crystal clear on one point, and I'll use this as a conclusion. Jesus is coming again to earth to receive his kingdom 
And this is all of our great hope. So first, first Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is Christ coming to earth bodily and finally. And there are some markers on how we know what this looks like. All of his enemies will be placed under subjection. The dead will be raised to life. And then Christ will take his kingdom, this completed project, and hand it over to God the Father. And at this time, death is defeated. This is the final coming of Christ. This is what we are waiting for. This is what we look forward to with eager anticipation. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you that we have this to look forward to. We thank you for so many things, that you established your kingdom through a cross and through rising from the dead, that you've brought us into your kingdom through faith, amazingly. We thank you that somehow you're using us, these fallible vessels to be messengers of your kingdom and carry this gospel all over the world to grow your kingdom. Unbelievable. We thank you. And we thank you that you will return, that you will defeat death, that you will raise us from the grave and that we will be given to the Father as a gift. These things are too magnificent for us and we stand in awe of you because of them. May our lives be filled with gratitude towards you because of your great work in us and around us. Thank you for these words that you've given to us in Scripture. Penetrate our hearts with them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.